Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to the People's Medicine Show. I'm Sean Mernon, the host of the show. This is a monthly, uh, it could be a call-in show or it could just be me speaking. I was, I received a call tonight and I was wondering, how do I get them on the air? I haven't had many calls that I don't know. Well, let me tell you about the show. Um, the, the first theme is herbal medicine, but I also talk about gardening and medicine making. And I wanted to also say I like talking about big ideas, what ideas that I stumble across uh, over the month. I bring them to the show, put them out on the table, and share them with other people. So I clipped a few uh, podcasts that I've been listening to over the month that caught my attention. I wanted to share those tonight. I think... um, so it's February, it's February 7th, and we do have a call-in number. The call-in number is 646-929-2463. If you'd like to call in and you're listening live, go ahead. But I'm here every first Thursday of the month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and if you want to make a note of that number, you can call in while the show is being recorded. So I uh, wanted to say, yeah, it's uh, February, it's uh, Susan Weed's birthday, and I, it's funny, I remember it being Susan Weed's birthday, because uh, several years ago she um, sent a note saying, yeah, it's my it's my uh, 70th birthday, and I'm starting a mentorship program, and um, yesterday Susan had her monthly uh, Zoom chat, it's a video chat with the people who are in her mentorship program. And I have not showed up to the Zoom chat for, I think it's been two months. Yeah, January and February, I missed the Zoom chat. But it's a a great perk if you just want some face-to-face time with Susan. I believe um, there's different levels if you do want a personal uh, consultation. But I think it starts at $111 for a year, so it's way less than $10 a month to have a, a private chat, you know, semi-private with a group of other people and a conversation with other herbalists. I don't know how well I'm selling it, but it's really exciting. And I, I, I kind of did not have my priorities straight yesterday, you know, if I really, really wanted to, to attend the session. So I expect to be there in for the March session. <laughs> So I picked an herb this month, and I've I've talked about this uh, plant uh, probably just less than a year ago, and it's hibiscus citiflora, and that would be the herb that I'm going to really you know focus in again. And I found a new website. What what's really got me excited about this herb is I've been making the infusions of it, and I'll make an infusion of this herb, and it lasts about a week. And uh, hibiscus sabdaritha. So when you buy dried herbs, it's basically the hibiscus uh, uh, flowers. <laughs> and it's not the actual flower petals. It's the calyx of the hibiscus. And a lot of people call this herb roselle or Jamaican hibiscus. And I found a really cool um, website talking about how to grow it because one of my neighbors gave me some starts that um, some plants that were already started and then they gave me a whole bag of seeds I probably have a couple hundred seeds so if you if you do want to um, contribute to the show or um, communicate with me I am on Facebook my my last name is M U R N I N you can send me a message I'll send you some of these hibiscus sevdivora seeds you want to just um, send me an email, I set up an email account, uh, the People's Medicine Show at gmail.com. So I'm really excited about hibiscus. So I've been making about a half a gallon, and I'll drink maybe a pint at most a day. It's really tart, and it really goes well with a lot of ice. So it, it, this, in, this uh, herbal infusion seems to be so concentrated that it could be diluted quite a bit with ice and water. So I was just been totally refreshed drinking this, but I've been also drinking my regular uh, herbal infusions every day. Today I made red clover blossoms and um, yeah, I have it all poured out on ice right near near me right now. So I'm trying to um, remember everything I wanted to 
talk about, but I, I told you how to reach me. I also just changed the name of my Instagram account. I put irregularly uh, post pictures of plants and things that I'm doing on my Instagram. And I, na- I renamed my Instagram account Big Island Botanica. So if you need help finding it, send me a message on Facebook or send me an email at uh, uh, peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So I want to read a little bit about how to growing your own hibiscus sabdiferra plant. And this is from a website, dengarden.com, D-E-N-Garden.com. So I'll go ahead and start reading about sabdif- hibiscus sabdiferra, derifa, roselle plant. Oh, while hibiscus sabdiferra is a native native plant of the tropics. Given the right care, they are also perfectly capable of being grown and harvested in northern climates with seasonal temperatures, also known as roselle or sorrel. They are similar to humans in that they thrive best and are healthiest in conditions of moderation. Whether you're dealing with temperature, water, or fertilizer, or too little is harmful. Moderation is key and a healthy hibiscus will produce quality calyxes for consumption. So seeding, be sure to nick the bottom of the seed, the flat part, before planting. If there is no seed meat, it will not grow. If you do not live in a climate that has reasonably predictable spring weather or weather that is too wet, it is best to plant hibiscus seeds in early spring in trays. You can then be in a position to move them indoors if the weather becomes hostile. Wait, wait until they are established enough to not be tipped over by an exceptionally hard rain to plant them in the garden. Tipping can kill a new seedling quickly. It is probably safe to move them outside after, after they get to be about three inches tall. Seeds will typically germinate between 10 days to three weeks after planting. After planting the seeds, keep them lightly watered, enough to keep the soil moist but not wet. Spray them with mist bottle three or four times a day. So I still have not uh, germinated my hibiscus. So that's basically the information that I really need to concentrate on is uh, getting these seeds started. So I'm looking forward to giving you an update on that. So last month I uh, was talking about wormwood and I made a wormwood tincture with 100 proof vodka and I tried it. I think it's about four weeks old. been tincturing for about four weeks. I tried it today and it's like, woo-woo, it's really, really bitter and um, far out. And I'm really blown away that Artemisia seems to be in that power plant category. Um, I'm just putting it right there with the, you know, coca, cannabis, coffee, opium. You know, Artemisia really is uh, one of them real power plants that you go to for special reasons. I know our, our cronewort, the Artemisia vulgaris, is uh, really in a, a renowned uh, dream plant that if you want to have more dreams, you, um, you smudge your room or make a dream pillow out of Artemisia vulgaris, also known as cronewort. <laughs> but, um, Wormwood, I'm just getting to know, and that was my plant that I chose last month, and I, I wanted to just come back and say, yeah, I'm still working with wormwood. I gave it a, I've been giving it a few shakes and trying the tincture out, and from what I understand, as a travel herb, it would be an herb I would use. I would bring bring it with me while I'm traveling, and if I'm in a questionable area where I think I might get food poisoning or the water's not safe, I could perhaps use some of the Artemisia, uh, the Wormwood Artemisia. I did not remember the scientific name for that uh, Wormwood Artemisia. Oh, Absinthia. (laughs) So like Absinthe. So that is um, the two plants that I'm really kind of excited about. I'm new at. I have a bunch of cannabis seeds and I'm going to try to get um, a license to grow it and um, join my local group that grows cannabis. So I'm going to probably talk a little bit more personally about cannabis in in the next few months and tell you what I'm up to. I have some really high CBD strains. I 
I have the seeds for a very um, hybridized CBD strain of cannabis that they've measured it to be as high as 30% CBD. So that's yet to be um, proven, you know, so I'm just excited to be able to grow something like, oh, okay, let me see if I can get a um, a plant with a 30% CBD level. But um, I was fooling around with edible cannabis. I made some butter, and I've been just putting it in various foods. I made like a pot of brown rice, and I put some of the coconut oil and butter with the cannabis in the in, in some brown rice. And I'm really frightened about cannabis in eating too much of it because it's a serious, like, physical feeling. Like, I just want to lie down and, and stay still. And today it was funny because I... I fried some pierogies and I had the leftover of the cannabis in it. Oh my goodness. I just like my, <laughs> and I am very um, cautious with uh, eating cannabis. I think people that, uh, you know, need cannabis for medicine, perhaps eating it would be the best thing for them. But I think starting out with a, a, a full spectrum CBD oil and you going like one drop, two drops, three drops is probably the wisest way uh, if you're going to use edible cannabis to start out with. Uh, oftentimes, smoking it's the very easiest way to um, get immediate relief and you know figure out how much is um, enough without um, consuming too much. So I just wanted to warn people. That yeah, eating cannabis can be. Uh, uh, there's been people who've gone to the emergency room because they think they're going to die because they ate too much cannabis. So, so on to another power plant. So it is, it is funny that we've come up with this word power plant to describe some of these plants that perhaps could become habit forming and perhaps could be misused. And um, that's something, you know, I'm, I'm just wide open to that, you know, you want to really show respect and uh, form some ritual around using these uh, powerful plants if that's what you want to do. So um, so I think I someone called in. I'm, I'm going to hopefully you want to talk on the air. I don't know. But if you're just listening to the show, please don't feel self-conscious. But I'm going to go ahead and unmute somebody. Oh, okay, they hung up. So I am the only one calling in tonight to the show. So I mentioned uh, Susan Weed's birthday. So go ahead, send Susan Weed a birthday card. I know she loves getting uh, postal mail. And I think February is the month that I usually will send her some postal mail without fail. So that is something. So another thing that really has stricken me I don't know if that's the word stricken, but just jumped on me this month is just a thought, a big idea is we live on this planet that's uh, just, it's not in trouble. <laughs> I think the people on the planet are in trouble <laughs> and we're, we're living these economies. We're living under these economies that do not meet our basic needs. And I saw a clip of George Carlin. It's, she, I made a clip, and it comes from one of his comedy routines. And it's his comedy routine is, the planet is fine. The people are fucked. So let me go ahead and play some George Carlin. It's a short clip, and uh, we'll start the show with him. Well, the planet is fine. Well, the, planet the people is fine. are fucked. You'll be gone. Dinosaurs had their chance. There was an age of reptiles. Now it's the age of primates. And who knows? Maybe it'll be the insects next. It's not up to us. It's not divinely ordained. We're here on chance, and we're going to go away. And the planet will heal. The planet will heal because that's what it does. It heals itself. It's a self-healing organism. It changes and grows. It'll incorporate all of our dead cities into itself, and it will become something else. But it will still be going around the sun for at least a few more billion years or whatever. So we're, this whole thing, we have to save the planet by not putting diapers in the landfill. That's, that's too short-sighted. That doesn't do anything. You have to change yourself. Okay, so that's Mr. George Carlin. 
And um, we have to change ourselves. Uh, we got to stop this. Uh, we need to model our economy about reducing global warming. I do not understand where where they're coming from. And perhaps more will be revealed to me that, oh, yeah, if we do certain things by the year 2030, that the planet will be saved by human beings. <laughs> so I don't know really that that discussion. I really can't get it. And I guess there's all kinds of words to describe people who are not, like, on board. They call them uh, climate change deniers and, you know, global warming. So, so it is really interesting that I'm learning a lot about when people argue, they'll use certain uh, tactics. And they'll just, name, you know, call someone a conspiracy theorist or uh, a denier. <laughs> it's, just, it's, you know, it's just a something that's going on and I think more and more people are like me they're noticing these things that um you know it's good to look at things and so another really wonderful thing that I've seen this month was uh or heard was on uh Chris Dr. Chris Ryan's podcast tangentially speaking and I've spoken about uh, Michael Reynolds before he started this community in Taos, New Mexico, where they build these sustainable homes. And there was a movie made probably 10 years ago called Garbage Warrior. It's a wonderful documentary, if you're not familiar with who Michael Reynolds is. But listening to him on Chris Ryan's podcast this month just brought brought back, like, wow, okay, uh, maybe we should not worry about the economy too much and uh, worry about our basic needs. And we can do these without being destructive. So concentrating on fulfilling our six basic needs is where he is, uh, that's where his message is. It's funny, I do not feel very articulate today. Maybe I should uh, write out more of a script of what I wanna do. I did have a clip of Susan and I'm going to play that toward the end of the show because um, Susan talks about, um, I'll get back to uh, the clip that I have of Susan, which is about one minute long. But let's get back to um, the clip that I was introducing. Now, Michael Reynolds is a architect. He travels around the world. He builds sustainable homes for people around the world. And he's coming from a certain philosophy that um, the planet is fine. The people need to get in line with um, their own needs. And we can do this without all these uh, destructive habits of uh, producing way too much garbage and um, polluting and destroying things. So here is Michael Reynolds. And I'm going to go ahead and just keep playing these. I think maybe there's about five minutes of Michael Reynolds. So I'm going to go ahead and play some clips from him. The things that they do need that are provided for them by the powers that be, power, water, sewage, whatever, uh, electricity, comfort, uh, energy, these things weaken them. And if they get them on their own, they can be more empowered and be more of themselves but the other thing is the way the powers that be the corporate uh, world the government the way they are getting the things that they are selling to the people that they know the people need water energy shelter everything sewage treatment the the way they're doing it is is asinine ridiculous retarded scary it's horrible and not only so you got that Plus the fact that they're still fumbling and failing at it anyway. I mean, Japan has a nuclear power plant that's melting down. Uh, it's bad enough that it's destroying the northern hemisphere. But I was just in Japan recently, uh, and the people are cold. They got a bunch of crappily insulated houses that are that are that way on purpose because they had an abundance of nuclear power. Well, now the plant's offline. So they're cold and they wreck the planet. So, I mean, it's just like a double whammy. <laughs> uh, one of the most uh, impressive and feared and powerful things on this planet is cancer because it's cellular, because you can't take the heart and the brain down and get the whole thing. 
There is no heart and brain. Every cell has got everything it needs. Why don't we learn from that? Every person in their building, every person in their home, every mm. building can have everything it needs straight from the biology and physics of the planet. You don't need infrastructure. Infrastructure is problematic. They're always in beautiful Prague. They're digging up this cobblestone streets for the sewage lines, whatever. Sewage and, and electricity and water. The infrastructure concept is archaic. It's beyond archaic. It's, it's asinine. So we have the technology and we always had it really, but it, it, we have the technology and the biology and the physics and everything to, to get everything that humanity needs directly without a middleman from the sky, basically. <clears throat> and uh, I've, I've distilled it down to their six things that humanity must have. Now, it's, a BLT is not one of them, although I like them. Uh, <clears throat> must have to stay alive type things, six of them. Uh, comfortable shelter that doesn't use fossil fuel. Electricity, I'm not going backwards. I need electricity for my cell phone, my laptop, and you need electricity. You need water. You need something to do with your sewage, believe it or not. We don't know what to do with it. We stack it up. We pi Piping shit around a city is the most ridiculous thing I have ever dreamed of uh, when I start thinking of that that's what we do. We pipe all of our shit to a certain area, put it all together, and it's a big problem then. Whereas if you're dealing with it on your own scale, it's, it's, it's gold. Mm. You can grow stuff with it. So something to do with your shit, something to do with your garbage, because we do create garbage constantly, and all we do is ship it off to a dump and stack it up. That's not working. And food. Right. Those six things must be addressed for you to have a life. For you all to just go out and live somewhere, you're going to have to address those six things. You're going to make some garbage. You're going to make some shit. You're going to need some electricity. You're going to need some water. You're going to need some comfort, and you're going to need some food. You can't have a life without all of those being addressed. They're rioting in Ukraine, let's say, or rioting in Egypt, because they want a better, they say in the news, because they want, they're screaming for a better economy. I don't even know what an economy is. But they think the economy will provide them with those six things. Mm -hmm. But it never does. I want to provide them with those six things. Fuck the economy. And then I, would, I, I recognize that economy is a factor of, of, of humanity. It's, it's not a bad concept, but it shouldn't be God. It should be something that you play with, not desperately need. What if a country like the U.S. or any country did recognize those six things and then did go around the world trying to get them for everyone? Mm. The, the thing that would happen is right now we want to be the most powerful. America wants to be the most powerful country in the world, and they're always insecure about it, and they got to have a big bomb and whatever. More important than all of that would be if America went around to every country in the world and made sure that they had every every one of those six things. Those countries would worship America. Right. Whatever leader did that, the people of the world would worship them because every leader wants to be worshipped, but he doesn't know how to get worshipped. That's the way to get worshipped, is to give everybody in the world everything they need. So that was Michael Reynolds from the Tangentially Speaking podcast, and it was a recent episode, and you can probably find that wherever you find po podcasts. Um, Dr. Christopher Ryan is uh, wonderful. I love the guests that he has. He's he's right now he's in Bali, so he has a lot of his guests um, uh, based in Bali right now. And uh, he he might have uh, interviewed um, uh, Michael Reynolds um, as somewhere in Asia. I don't recall where they were when they did that interview. But those are some really big ideas that people need shelter. They need a, a way to deal with their waste and garbage. They need energy. They need comfort. Now, comfort is a, um, I guess, comfort 
is for different for each person. So that that is a basic need that a human being needs comfort. And finally, they need food and a sustainable way to have a supply of food. So those are just six basic things. Now, comfort could be all over the place. A lot of times we think, oh, that's going to make me comfortable. And then once we get it, we're like, no, I really don't need that as comfort. So that's part of the human idea, um, <laughs> the human uh, journey of figuring out, uh, what do I need to be comfortable? Yeah, I need people around me who love me. I need to be physically touched. I need to be stimulated intellectually. Those are things of comfort. And we're good at providing things for ourselves that give us comfort. So, but it, those other things, uh, sustainable shelter, well-insulated homes, and a, a, a way to deal with our sewage and be, get, empower ourselves in these ways. So I'm in this process right now. I just hired a surveyor. I bought an acre of land, and I want to build a home. And I don't know how long it may take me to, to finish building a home, but I figured, you know, maybe it'll take me 10 or 15 years, but maybe, maybe not. But I'm giving myself a lot of room. Like, I, I really want to build this home and stop paying rent one day and just um, pay, you know, pay the government some taxes and just live in the home. <laughs> I live in a small community on the South Kona coast. A lot of people will build their home just really slowly and gradually as they find pieces that they want and they find the, the building materials over a period of years and they eventually have a home. So who knows how, how I'm going to get my home built. But I'm still in the early phases. I just paid for the survey work done and now I'm going to um, hire someone to help me grade the land so I have a you know, a nice flat piece of land to build some things on. And I'm trying to incorporate a lot of the ideas about um, permaculture where they say, you know, observe and interact, step one. You know, so I'm just not really doing anything to this land. I surveyed it, and now I'm just in that observe and interact stage. And I think I will go ahead and play Susan's uh, clip that she was trying to She's leading a class, and this class is almost 20 years old, and it's a tape that is sold at the Wise Woman Bookshop. Someone recommended it to me, and I'm only one CD into it, and I'm just like, I just had to stop with this one clip that I want to play, and it's just changing my whole game that, um, yeah, when you want to, the class is called Magical Plants, and Someone recommended it to me, and Susan starts the class by saying, what is your definition of magic? And some people will say, yeah, it's when there's, you know, something that's beautiful, that, um, you know, when I see something beautiful that's sparkly, that's magic. And Susan was trying to steer it around saying, okay, let's, perhaps let's look at magic as something that we do and something that we tune into. And I love this analogy, so I'm gonna play a clip from uh, Magical Plants, uh, Susan Weed um, intensive that was done at the Green Nations Gathering in 19, oh wow, 1997, so 22 years old. And Susan basically hasn't really changed much. I don't think, I think I've taken this class with her in person, and it's basically the same thing. But it, so let's hear um, what Susan Weed uh, will call something. Uh, describe, you know, what what would you describe something as magic? To it that we say, oh, that's kind of sparkly. That partakes of magic, but it isn't yet magic until there's some consciousness, right? And consciousness, so that we can flow along with change. I mean, the waves come into the shore all the time. But if you get a surfboard and go out there, you can surf those waves. And that's something different than just the waves coming into shore. And to me, that's a lot what magic is about, is first of all, understanding how to make a surfboard, 
then understanding how you get your surfboard out where the waves are, and then how you get yourself turned around and watch the waves and go with the waves until you choose your wave and you take it into shore. So in that definition, magic is something that anyone can do. Yeah, so, uh, so this thing with magic and waiting for the waves and swimming out, and I suppose there's a lot of people that love surfing, and they love just watching people surf, you know, by sitting on the beach. <laughs> and there's people that, so it is, it is funny that magic could be something you, I guess you could spectate and watch someone else do, or you can build your own surfboard and swim out and turn around and wait and do, and do magic yourself. So I really love the whole surfing analogy on what is magic. And yeah, that's the way I feel right now, that I've, um, I'm turning the surfboard around and I'm just waiting for waves. <laughs> I'm waiting for um, various things to perhaps build this home and, and start a, a, a more sustainable lifestyle for myself. So I, I've been also listening to this podcast called Judge John Hodgman. And the other thing, I'm really into uh, this court, court themes. And I think it's just um, I'm really attracted to fairness and people saying having a conflict and bringing it to a court and having a third person uh, mitigate or interpret each, each party's side for the other things. The other TV show that I, I, I said in December, I, I made this announcement to everyone that I want to withdraw from the digital world and get more back to just pen and paper and basic um, creating and less typing and more writing. So I've been doing that. And it's funny because I've stopped um, playing on the computer as much, but I seem to come home every night and I relax by watching uh, four episodes of Judge Judy. And it, 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 it's fascinating that I also like the judge-themed podcast, Judge John Hodgman. There was a funny clip. I was trying to find it, and the woman was um, mitigating with her husband in, on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And she was like, I want him to, to have what he wants, but I want him to ha want something different. <laughs> I want to give him what he wants, but I want him to want something different. And I was trying to find the clip, and it, it was just made me laugh. That I want to give you what you want, but I won't. I don't. I want you to want something different. So I'm hoping I'm not going too much off on a tangent, but I really am attracted to fairness and justice lately. And I think that there's something there, and I'm going to continue to, um, you know, watch uh, these episodes on the DVR when I get home from work, and it's a I really enjoy the Judge Judy show, and it's fascinating to hear people speak, and they're lying, and they don't even realize how they're lying, and they need Judge Judy to say, you're full of crap. And I, I think I've been steamrolled my whole life by people that are just liars, and I have no way to really pinpoint, and most of the time I've gotten really angry, and I, and I become... I become really the bad person when I can't really stop someone from mowing me down, except if I freak out and become sort of violent myself. And um, so it's funny, though, that I've been, um, I have been kind of um, bullied my whole life by people that, you know, just mow me down with bullshit. And um, it is fun to, <laughs> that that is the form of entertainment that I've been attracted to lately are these judge-type themed shows. I've, I've only stuck with Judge Judy. I haven't gone to the other five or ten different TV shows, and I watch those. I zip through the commercials and and try to not use my t use my time to be entertained wisely and be 
It's funny though. I'm I work as a as a rideshare driver throughout the day, so I have I've had plenty of time to listen to podcasts. So it is. I think this People's Medicine show will be fun in future months because I I'm, I seem to be listening to more podcasts because I'm commuting in my car a lot and hearing more things, and I look forward to bringing more things to the show. And um, so earlier this month, I found or earlier. Right. Uh, in January, not this month, I heard another show, um, and it was Cannabis Cultivation in Science, and they were talking about um, systems and how people like systems, and I think that is a very male thing to want a system and want to always be improving upon a system, and I really am... Very, you know, I a little bit, um, you know, I can't think of the word, but I want to just take that slow because I've always thought, oh, it's not good enough. It could be done better. It's a, oftentimes things aren't good enough, but it is interesting to hear people realize, yeah, let's let's like work smart. Let's work smart and do things in a wise, efficient way. So the topic of this cannabis cultivation in science. Uh, podcast is called lean farming i never heard of it and it's been around for like 80 years and and it goes back to like japanese rice farming and the systems that they use to efficiently uh, grow food and they've converted it into the you know the industrial age where a lot of the car manufacturers in japan adopted these uh, lean farming type practices so this is a kind of a long clip and um, I don't I, – I told you where it's from, so let's listen to it, and I'll be back in about 10 minutes. I had, I had heard of lean manufacturing. In fact, one of our um, main people at our farm was telling me about how we should incorporate this into the farm. And I was familiar with Toyota and all, you know, some of what they had done. And to me, there was a huge disconnect. I wasn't able to, in my brain – go from what Toyota does in the manufacturing facility to all the different aspects and things going on in my farm. It felt like there were too many variables. Uh -huh. So what your book really does is connects the dot between that lean manufacturing and then this thing, this concept of lean farming, which is that something that you coined? Is this your term? Uh, and actually, no, because uh, farms in Asia, Asia and in Scandinavia have been using lean systems thinking for several dec decades. It's just new to North America here. Um, and I, to clarify, too, they say lean came from manufacturing. However, the first workers uh, at Toyota in the 1930s were rice farmers. And it's these rice farmers who brought this lean way of thinking to the factory floor. And I think that's part of the reason that the seven types of waste that they originally identified at Toyota, these are waste that are ubiquitous on farms. And one has to wonder uh, if agricultural thinking didn't influence Toyota and and wasn't one of the reasons why Toyota eventually became eight point times eight times more profitable, you know, than G than GM and Ford. And uh, and I think farmers, especially in 17th and 18th century Japanese farmers, they just had to be shrewd, and they had to they had to farm farm you know, or else they weren't going to make it. And there are a lot of historical sociological reasons for that. But anyhow, so that's a, it's actually originally at, at as much an agricultural system as it is a manufacturing system. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Can we dive in a little bit to the the five basic principles of lean before we talk too much about Muda? And uh, you have some great examples here in your book, starting with, uh, is it Siri? Uh-huh, yeah. You mean for the 5S process? Yes, yes. Okay. And so lean is can roughly be thought of as a series of, there are four basic lean concepts that fit most appropriately in agriculture. And the first is to apply this 5S organization system. And the second is, value, is, is identifying value from your customer and then getting rid of the mootness. Then the fourth step would be continuous improvement. And so we can begin by talking about that first step, which, is, which I think is the place to begin for most farms, is to use this 5S process. And essentially, there's five steps to getting a workplace uh, orga organized according to the lean system. And it all goes back to when am I adding value? When am I contributing to waste? And so the first step of that 5S process is called Siri or sort. 
And essentially what that means is you go around your property and every object on that, on, in your work environment, you ask a simple question, which is, did you add value for a customer in the past and for cannabis, say in the past and growing season, did you add value for a customer, whether it's a fork or a hoe or, uh, you know, plunger container or whatever. And if you, if you struggle to come up with an answer, if you have to think it over, then it's probably time to get rid of that item. Okay. And so at Toyota, they're very ruthless about the only items in the workplace were those that are being used on a daily basis for adding value. And we do this twice a year on our farm. We go around to every object. And some say you should actually physically touch the object. We don't physically touch every object, but we, we at least come close to it, physically close to it. And we ask that question, do, did this row cover, did this hoe, did this traction implement add value in the past six months? And if the answer is no, oh, then we get it off the property. And we've been pretty ruthless about this. I don't like to have stuff on our property. And uh, we farm with enough tools that would fit in a, a small size pickup. And at, so as you're doing this, you want to choose tools that you want to farm with a few tools uh, that, add, uh, that add a lot of value, that perform many functions. And so we love, for instance, uh, a hoe that can be a grubbing hoe. That's, that's a strong hoe for you know, flipping soil if you need to. And yet it has uh, a fine point so we can use it for finer cultivating. Uh, or the BCS where you can swap out multiple implements and, and can perform a lot of functions. We're, we're always on the lookout for how can we farm with fewer tools and get more work accomplished. Now, that kind of leads us into the next, um, the next one, which is set in order. Because when you say fewer tools, you are removing tools, but you're also putting the tools where they're most useful and even duplicating tools. Can you touch on that a little bit? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So we used to, for instance, we used to have a centralized tool storage area, a tool shed, like a lot of farms would have. And the first thing we did, a lean consultant came out and said, you really need to take a stick of dynamite to that tool shed because it's adding a lot of muda to your process. And the reason is for every process we had to do, say, prune tomatoes, We'd have to walk 200, 300 paces to the tool shed, grab the pruners, then walk back to the greenhouse and prune the tomatoes and then return the pruners. We'd put in as much work uh, going to get the pruners and returning them as we did actually pruning the tomatoes. And so what we started to do in the lean system says do this, you want to hang your tools at eye level, eye level locations as close as possible to their points of use. And so now we have magnets uh, spread out across the property that hold knives and uh, pruners that we use on a regular basis. And every greenhouse, we have four greenhouses, every one has a tool set up, and the tools we need in that greenhouse are attached to the greenhouse somewhere. I, I got to say that's a huge one for me. I a real light bulb went off because I know for a fact, like some projects, I would, I would spend 15, 20 minutes just looking for a tool because it wasn't replaced. It would be on the entire other side of the property from where it needs to be. And the idea of having an extra set of pruners or extra sets of shovels or whatever implement tool I'm implementing in the location where I'm going to use it can save not just my time, but my employee's time, which I'm paying labor on. And yeah. um, that was a big one. So we're working on, on getting all of the right tools in the right places. And I know that's going to save us a ton of time. Awesome. And I think it's okay to duplicate tools. Uh, we say if a tool costs $50 or less, we're going to probably duplicate that tool. And so, for instance, every greenhouse, uh, we own uh, probably 15 or so uh, knives that we harvest with, even though we only going to use three or four knives at a time. But every greenhouse has a couple of them attached to the greenhouse uh, so that for the reason that they're physically closer to where we're using them. And that small investment is paid off. Now, we don't buy a tractor, a separate tractor for every greenhouse. You know, there's a limit to tool duplicating, but the point is to keep your tools close to your workstations. Yeah, I'll put up some pictures. You also have some mobile workstation examples in your book that are really interesting too, uh -huh. um, that show that you can you can move the tools around with the worker so that they're easily accessible and uh, easy to see when you're getting low on supplies as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Darren, uh, Darren Volmer, Vol an excellent farmer up in Wisconsin, uh, he would have more workers than we have, several dozen workers during uh, peak you know, harvest season. And what he does is he would have a five gallon bucket uh, with an organizing basket attached to it. And so every worker gets a bucket with precisely the tools they need and they carry that bucket around with them and they're responsible for those tools in the bucket. But the, the point is that to not, to, to make sure tools are where they belong or in your hands, they're either in their place or in your hands and there's no third option. 
That's great. And that leads us to our next concept, which is shine. Uh-huh. Yeah. So like I said, um, there's a lot of language. You read a lot about vision and seeing in the lean literature. And the idea behind the shine concept is you want to clean your tool, your, your workspaces with a tooth, toothbrush and make sure they're well lit. Your most used tools, workspaces should be very clean. And the reason uh, behind that is you want to see when waste is creeping in. And so with, with uh, cannabis production, you want to think about when are the steps in my process when uh, there's the most defect happening, you know, when you're cleaning or maybe it's in, in packaging or whatever. You want to make sure those spaces are very clean and very well lit, too, so you, so you can see your work. And the, I, a principle here, too, is you want to perform size oh, in short, high-frequency spurts. And instead of long, low frequency. Let me explain the difference. Uh, short, high frequency means that every time we're done, you know, washing 100 pounds of lettuce in the processing area or hosing 100 pounds or 100 bunches of carrots, we're going to restore that processing, processing area to zero. What that means is we're going to take it all the way back to clean. Uh, so that's clean condition. And we hang pictures up in our processing area so that there's no ambiguity about what zero looks like in that processing area. And so every time we're done working in there, you know, every, every hour, 90 minute chunk of time that we're done working, we're going to take it back to zero is the language we use. And what we used to do, the long, low frequency method would be to, we just junk up the farm from say March until Thanksgiving. And then we thought, Hey, we'll have the time and energy all winter to clean it. But we never did. It always just every year just got more cluttered. And what which, which happens, so when it comes to these first three steps, sorting, setting in order, and cleaning, the thing I tell people is that you don't have to do it all in one weekend. We did, actually. About a week, we just we got several wagon loads off of our property, several tons of junk literally off our property. We, just, we did it in one big push. Uh, however, you don't have to. What you can do is just make sure that you're headed in the right direction because the trajectory that you're, you're, you're on is ultimately the most important thing. Because trajectory is a very powerful psychological force. It's the most powerful force in the world, I think. Because if you think about it, your, your farm is headed in one of two directions. You're either getting more cluttered every growing season or you're getting more decluttered. You're only headed in one of two directions, and you just want to know you're headed the right direction. Okay, that was Ben Hartman, and that clip came from episode 20 of the Cannabis Cultivation in Science podcast. I believe Ben Hartman has a book that he wrote called Lean Farming, and he's the real deal. I think believe uh, he's only using about an acre of land, and he's growing vegetables, and it was a number thrown around, and he's making like 100 grand a year uh, growing vegetables and salad greens on about an acre of land. So it is possible to have a small piece of land that's um, manageable and doable. And it's funny because that term muda, a lot of times, um, if you look it up, M-U-D-A, there's all different kinds of muda. And biting off too much that you can chew, overproducing is wasteful. And it's, I'm having a lot of fun just looking at my life and developing a zero level that I return things to after I'm done working and just getting that system in place of short spurts and bringing everything back to zero. And when I was working with Susan Weed on her homestead, that's a lot of um, the type of work that I was taught, you know, like work in short spurts. Stay high energy, and don't do too much. Don't bite off more than you could chew. And it's really helpful as an herbalist to be able to work like that because you could keep uh, a high energy with what you're doing and doing it with passion and love, whereby when you're putting so much pressure on yourself to keep working for hours and hours and hours, the quality, efficiency, everything, it becomes wasteful. So um, frequent breaks, taking frequent breaks, you know, when you, at the end of the day, when you measure the amount of work, when you're taking frequent breaks, you're getting more work done and it's better work. It's more quality. It's 
And um, but I I love this um Wikipedia page on Muda, Japanese term. And they, they've added different types of things that's uh, wasteful. They, there's like seven basic categories that, you know, Toyota used. And then they've added ones. Unused skills is Muda. And then they have confusion and self-doubt as forms of Muda. And that's just like really rocked my world. I was like, yeah, any form, any confusion and self-doubt, you're participating in wasteful, you know, wasteful thoughts right there so um i um i don't know where really where else to go with the podcast i i have one more clip from bubble man uh marcus richardson i played some of him yet uh last month and i'm gonna play another clip from marcus bubble man he he has a webs uh youtube channel uh bubble man it's bubble man's world and this comes from he was a guest on someone else's show, and I was like, you know, this is all like basic knowledge. And he's talking about bioaccumulation in hemp. And I, I think it's really exciting because he also talks about how tobacco farmers are really hip to what uh, bioaccumulates in, inside tobacco. So here's uh, Marcus Richardson, the bubble man, uh, talking about bioremediation, bioaccumulation in cannabis and hemp was a photocopy of a front cover of Popular Mechanics from 1932, and it was an article they did called The Billion Dollar Crop. And it was the first time billion and dollar had ever been used in an economic statement. And so from that, and it was about hemp. It was about growing hemp for the war efforts and producing hemp and for sales and, and all the different clothing and the, you know, all, all, of, the, all of the parachutes, everything, the, the ropes for the ships. And so we, he, he kind of had this understanding, like, oh, okay, like, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. In 1932, this hemp, hemp was considered a billion-dollar crop. Maybe you could consider it a trillion-dollar crop. He was kind of a little more understanding. And then, you know, he was like, my hands are tied. We showed him the 1962 peace treaty. We had the whole thing printed out, and we had the actual, like, paragraph 34, section B, where it actually said low-THC hemp is outside of the, the regulations. So you can't grow cannabis, but you can grow in that is medical cannabis for medical reasons or hemp with low THC. And the, the THC amount, I believe, was 0.3%. So we said, we have a cultivar that comes in at 0.03%. We're ready to do this. We have farmers that are interested. We have all these different people. And that was really, within nine months, the first hemp field in Canada was grown by Joe Strobel and Jeff Keim in Ontario. They were a tobacco farmer and a lawyer who were partnered up. And it's an interesting story because, you know, tobacco farmers spray their fields with a, a chemical called radium-226, and that is a radioactive nucleotide, but what it does is on the field is it raises nicotine levels in the plant, which is something they're not allowed to do in the lab, but through pesticide and herbicide banner, they can raise the nicotine levels of these plants through radium-226, mm -hmm. which is super dangerous. It makes the tobacco farmers have to regulate their fields, and they have to monitor their fields for radioactivity. So the first time they grew a hemp field, they got theirs in 94. Um, by 95, they were measuring their hemp field and being like, this is really low radiation levels. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, would the plant have pulled it up? And this is where we learned of the phytoremediative properties of, of hemp. And our group, which got our license the next year in 95, um, we started a company called Consolidated Growers and Processors, and that group started a project in the Ukraine, uh, in Chernobyl, uh, growing hemp to remove radioactive nucleotides out of the soil because hemp is an incredible phytoremediative plant. It'll pull all sorts of toxins out of the plant, which is great when you're growing it for phytoremediative capabilities, and it's absolutely horrible when you're growing it for medicine and you're using toxic you know, chemicals or pesticides or herbicides to grow that plant because people just don't understand it all goes systemically into the plant. Mm -hmm. The plant pulls it up. And there's other phytoremediative plants like sunflowers are good for nickel. You know, you plant sunflower where there's nickel deposits. You don't have to dig up the earth to get the nickel out. The sunflowers will actually pull it right out, and then you burn and smelt down the plants, and you'll end up with this nickel. Yeah, so that's a really big idea with um, using um, when you're growing cannabis as medicine, perhaps over fertilizing, you're going to get uh, harsher um, cannabis 
by having too much nutrition and heavy metals in your soil. You're going, uh, there was, um, there's an old um, cannabis uh, cultivator, I think his name's Kyle Cushman, and he's developed um, like bottled nutrients, and he claims that there's less uh, heavy metal residues if you use his bottled nutrients. And he, you know, they're going for, you know, a gourmet type of thing where they want the cannabis to smoke very mildly and smoothly. And it's interesting to know that what effects um, you have when you're growing something sensitive like tobacco or cannabis that's going to be smoked, whether uh, you want all that extra, uh, you know, synthetic fertilizers and um, real heavy, heavy mineral uptake of these plants. So, so I'm just about ready to end the show, but I'm noticing there's another clip here in the queue, and I might have uploaded it last month. So I'm going to go ahead and play it. It's um, labeled Annie Williams, so maybe Susan played it on her show, and it's in the queue. And I'll go ahead and play Annie Williams before I close out the show. That was beautiful. I did not upload that clip, but perhaps I'll play it again. 
I'm really happy that I chose to, to play it. So I've been on the air for an hour. I think I've shared as much as I want to about herbal medicine in my own life and what I've been up to and uh, share, you know, bringing some of the big ideas that I've come in contact with over the past month. And I look forward to doing it again next month. If you want to communicate with me, please send me an email. My name is Sean Mernon. Um, the email address is peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. And I'm getting an alert that I have a yoga class that's going to start in about an hour. So perhaps this show will only be an hour long, but if we get a lot of people that want to contribute, we can go two hours. So I will uh, join you next month. And I'm also going to say I'm going to make every effort to attend the Zoom chat next month, which I believe is the first Wednesday of every month. So have a good good, good life, everyone. I love you all, and um, I'll be back next month.